Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Ross Rebliati, Canada. Olympic champion, gold medalist, Ross Rebliati, Canada. It's February 8th, 1998, the Nagano Winter Games. It's the first night of medal ceremonies in the town square in downtown Nagano. Ross Rebliati, a snowboarder from Canada, stands atop the podium. He's there to receive his gold medal. Ross is wearing his red and white Team Canada jacket, a red beret, and the medal dangling from his neck. As the Canadian national anthem plays, the smile on his face says it all. It's becoming real. He's a gold medalist, and his life will never be the same. As an athlete, a young guy, like 26 years old, I didn't prepare myself for anything except to win. That's Ross, who had been working toward this moment for 10 years. I wasn't thinking about the day after or my career after, nothing. I didn't have plan B or C or nothing. It was plan A. It was win and then carry on and, you know, turn that in into sponsorship or whatever you do. His life changed almost instantly. At the medal ceremony, fans broke through a security barrier and mobbed him. One fan actually tried to pull his gold medal from his neck. Ross enjoyed the sudden attention and his newfound celebrity. He loved showing off the medal at parties. But then, on the morning of February 11th, three days after his medal ceremony, there was an unexpected knock at his door in Nagano. It was a coach bearing news. Ross had failed a drug test, and there was more. The Canadian Olympic Association is hereby requested to withdraw and return the medal and diploma awarded to the athlete Rebagliati for his first place in the giant slalom event. That's an International Olympic Committee official stoically announcing to the world that morning that Ross had tested positive for marijuana, that he was being disqualified from the Olympics and stripped of his gold medal. It was like this huge, like, oh my God, I just like dedicated my whole life to do this, and now it's just being ripped away from me. In 72 hours, Ross Rebliati had gone from a gold medalist to an accused drug cheat. His name was splashed across international headlines. His story was compared to that of another Canadian, sprinter Ben Johnson, who was embroiled in one of the most notorious drug scandals in Olympic history. Ross was shamed, disgraced. There were some times, you know, where I wish I never had gone and they could just keep the medal. Ross just wanted to disappear. He wanted to leave Japan and go back to his life in British Columbia. But that wasn't possible. In fact, things were somehow about to get worse. Because a day after he was stripped of his gold medal, Ross would find himself sitting inside a Japanese prison, asking himself one question. How on earth did he end up here?
I'm Molly Bloom, and this is Torched, a show about the heat of competition and what the greatest athletes would lose to win. This season is about controversies and scandals on the biggest world stage, the Olympics. And this episode is about an Olympic controversy that was unlike any other, one involving a snowboarder who achieved global fame and infamy. But while he's known for five crazy days at the Olympics, Ross's entire life has been a wild ride. It's a story about what it's like to go from a relative nobody to a gold medalist to a punchline. And it shows us how much and how little things have changed when it comes to Olympic athletes and weed. Just about everything when it comes to the Ross Rebliotti story is unlikely. Starting with how Ross got into snowboarding in the first place. Ross didn't grow up dreaming of one day becoming an Olympic snowboarder because, well, in the early 80s, snowboarding didn't even exist as a competitive sport. Snowboarding wasn't allowed when I started snowboarding. Ross grew up in British Columbia, site of many of the world's greatest ski destinations. So it's no surprise that skiing was his sport. Ross became a competitive ski racer at age 10. He took it seriously. He wasn't even aware of snowboarding until his high school woodworking teacher had Ross and his classmates make molds of wooden snowboards. After school, Ross started snowboarding on those boards. But he couldn't snowboard at ski resorts his family was going to at the time. Snowboarding wasn't allowed. And his parents weren't exactly thrilled that he was into it. My parents didn't want to know about it. They didn't care about it. They didn't want me to do it. People just didn't know what it was. It kind of had a bad rap like skateboarding. And it wasn't until 88 when just a couple of ski resorts in British Columbia allowed snowboarding. As a result, Ross got more into it. He threw aside his ski poles and with his hands free, racing down the mountain, it felt like flying. But as Ross said, snowboarding did have a bad rap. Snowboarders just seemed like they were of a different species. Speaking their own strange language, snowboarding was very much a counterculture. On the slopes, skiers were reluctantly learning to live with them. Snowboarders were stereotyped as degenerates and stoners. And in the 80s, weed was taboo. It was the era of campaigns like Just Say No, and This Is Your Brain on Drugs. Marijuana was viewed as a gateway drug. President Ronald Reagan had called it, quote, probably the most dangerous drug in the United States today. Which, yeah, I know probably feels ridiculous in 2022. As a teenager, Ross was really drawn to the world of snowboarding. There were no board shops, no magazines about the sport. But his mom had heard about a snowboard camp in Whistler near Vancouver, and Ross enrolled. Suddenly, his world opened up. He was being coached by pro snowboarders, and many of them were legends of the sport. I just couldn't even believe it. I'm like 15, turning 16, and all these pros. And by the end of the camp, uh, I had offers from several companies to be sponsored by them. So that caught the attention of my dad, and and he figured that, you know, if I was good at it and I'm I'm doing something that's not going to wreck my life on the weekends, then he'd get behind it. So that was kind of the the beginning of, of me getting into snowboarding. And Ross really got into it. With a sponsor, Burton Snowboards, backing him, Ross started competing. Like my first contest, I got third place. And so I was thinking, third place, I'm on the podium. 
Burton sponsoring me. Just like the the fact that I was getting sponsored at the first snowboard camp. I was thinking, well, there must be thousands of young snowboarders just like me, like trying to get sponsored. Like, how am I the one that's getting sponsored? But in reality, in 87, there wasn't a lot of guys out there snowboarding. And companies were just looking for anyone that, you know, was into it. And uh, so, I, you know, it was the right place at the right time. Sure. In 87, snowboarding was only beginning to really take off. But Ross was good. Really good. That's why he got sponsored. Within a few years, the blonde-haired kid from Vancouver who dropped out of college to focus on professional snowboarding was on the cover of magazines. One of the new stars in snowboarding. Ross had been doing freestyle snowboarding at the time. The version of snowboarding where boarders perform in-air and ground tricks like jumps, rail slides, and halfpipes. Ross excelled at and loved that component of snowboarding, but he also realized, as a former ski racer, he had a distinct advantage in snowboard racing, and he set himself apart in another way, how hard he trained. I was already the one guy on tour that really took that side of things very seriously. I even was accused of taking steroids at one race when I showed up in the first race of the year, and I just spent the whole summer lifting weights in Whistler. I was wearing a speed suit and everyone's like, holy fuck. And I took that as a compliment. I was like, okay, you guys think I'm doping? That's, that's awesome. Still, through the early 90s to the outside world, snowboarding remained a niche, oddball, and goofy sport. But perceptions started to change in 94, when snowboarding was declared an Olympic sport, set for its debut at the 98 Games in Nagano, Japan. As one of the world's top snowboarders, Ross was essentially a shoe-in for a spot in the Olympics, and that was surreal. It felt like this golden ticket had been dropped into his lap. I didn't get into this because my parents wanted me to or because there was a program at school. And to take it to the top of the World Cup and to be ranked in the top three in the world and then find out you're going to the Olympics in four years like is ridiculous, like just the thought of it. After four years of training, the wait was over. Ross and his teammates landed in Japan for the Olympic debut of their sport. As far as Olympic sports go, snowboarding felt like the new adopted member of the family that everyone wasn't so sure what to make of. So Ross may have been a star in the snowboarding world, but in the Olympic world, he was pretty much a nobody. Ross didn't have much time to enjoy the sights or the atmosphere at the Olympic Village. The snowboarding events were the very first full day of the Olympics. They were being held in a ski resort in the Nagano Highlands, away from the town. He would be competing in giant slalom racing. In the slalom, competitors race between sets of poles, known as gates, that are spaced apart at a certain distance. In the giant slalom, the gates are spaced farther apart. Each snowboarder makes two runs down the course, the times are added up, and the winner is the one with the fastest cumulative time. The morning started with blue skies and perfect conditions. Ross remembers the slope feeling like an ice rink because of how fast they were running. After his first run, Ross was in eighth place. His Canadian teammate, JCJ Anderson, was in first. First, second, and third place are determined by a hundredth of a second. Ross wasn't out of the running for a medal, but he certainly wasn't in a great position entering his second and final run. On top of that, between his first run and his scheduled time for his second, a storm had rumbled in and overwhelmed the area with blizzard conditions. 
Typically, Ross would get a call from a team coach with a detailed rundown of the course, if there were any soft spots on the track, anything to watch for. But between the blizzard conditions and the fact that he was one of the first up to race because of his position in the standings, Ross just made a joke when a coach called him on the radio to give him the report. And I just said, what time are the award ceremonies? At this point in time, like all the training that you've ever done in your life leads up to this point, right? I'm 26. I've been doing this, you know, since I was 15. There isn't going to be a course report now that's going to help me. And, uh, and so I just said, you know what, like, I'm just going to, I'm all in. And I just, I risked every, you know, everything that, that I could. Hey, here he is. Okay, Ross Rebliati of Whistler, British Columbia. This is the CBS broadcast of Ross's run. Ross is in a mostly white outfit, which makes him a little hard to follow because of the blizzard conditions. He's in eighth place after the first run. He was a half second back of JCJ Anderson. Yeah, Ross is looking good right now. As the broadcaster notes, Ross is making it look deceptively easy like he's in full control. In actuality, with the slopes being as slick as they are, he's hanging on for dear life, reaching a speed of 77 miles per hour. I didn't have time to get off my edge and onto the next edge on every turn, which is different than most races that you can usually hang on your edge for a little while and then set up for your next turn and then lay into it. And on this run, like I said, we're going 77. And so I was like on the edge and then literally like jumping to try to get off my edge onto the next edge. He's got nothing to lose. It's basically carve or starve for Ross right now. A carve is a hard turn in the snow. Carve or starve is the announcer's way of saying that Ross has to take risks with his turns to claim that first place spot, which he did. And his aggressiveness paid off. He made great time as he sped towards the finish line. It came down to the third to last gate where I was pointing like 45 degrees in the wrong direction, right at the gate. And uh, I basically used my water skiing, slalom water skiing uh, ability and laid down the hugest heel side crazy turn around and, and then shot into through the finish line. Ross Rebliati of Whistler, British Columbia takes over the lead. He's nice. in first place to this point. Nice one, Roscoe. You're the man, baby. You're the man. The race is over in just two minutes. Ross crosses the finish line to cheers. Spins around on the snow, looks up at the time. He's in first place, two hundredths of a second. He raises his arms in victory. It's a great run, but Ross hasn't actually won anything yet. He has to wait and see if anyone's combined time will top his. But each time a competitor finishes their second run and has a time that's worse, Ross keeps moving up on the scoreboard. And so, yeah, I just looking up at the Jumbotron, I went eighth, seventh, sixth. Finally, the leader, JCJ Anderson, went and finished with a stumble. The Jumbotron like went to the thousandth and all the numbers were the same, right? To the hundredth. I couldn't even see the time change. Only my name stayed at the top and, and his was on the bottom. Ross realized he'd done it. He'd won gold. I'm kind of speechless right now. I don't know what to say. I'm just glad everyone's watching back home and every all my friends. My dad's here. And got a lot of friends on tour wishing me good luck and everything. It's just a beautiful experience. In that moment, Ross was thrilled to win. 
But he was also proud to be the face of his sport, which he thought could finally gain some recognition and respect. It was like the most incredible feeling for me because, you know, I threw away the Olympic dream as a ski racer to start snowboarding and then re-realized it in a new sport that I helped bring to the Olympics, like from its inception. It wasn't lost on us that it was the first time snowboarding was at the Olympics. So it wasn't like we were just getting a gold medal, which was insane just to even think about, but we were the first round of snowboarders to compete at the Olympics. And so these would be the first gold medal for snowboarding. And so there was like that double win, basically. Ross took the podium at the medal ceremony, wearing his Team Canada jacket and a red beret. As the anthem blared, Ross stared in silence, quietly contemplating his journey to get to this moment. It would be the last moment of peace for a while. Things were about to get nuts. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. And so this was like the first event of the Olympics. And award ceremonies was insane. Leaving the award ceremonies and crossing the street to the other building, to the the hotel, uh, with the red carpet, thousands of people like behind the little red velvet, you know, chain that goes across the road, just screaming like at the top of their lungs. Like it was like the Beatles. Like snowboarding in Japan was already huge back in those days right and literally somebody from the crowd reached out and grabbed my medal and tried to rip it off my neck and steal it from me right there like within one minute of leaving the award ceremonies and everyone screamed and it was like a big people like went around me and got me across the street that night ross celebrated and the parting continued for a few days in fact they were still going on the morning of february 11th three days after winning gold when he got a knock on his door. The next morning, we were still kind of partying and people in the room looking at the gold medal and coaches came in and the party was over and coaches told everyone to get out. Ross knew something was up. The coaches told me to sit down and that I had um, tested positive for something on my drug test. Ross had tested positive for THC. He immediately thought back to a day earlier when he'd peed in a cup as part of the Olympic screening. At the time, he thought he had nothing to be nervous about. And they tested me immediately after that in a tent in the finish line. Yeah, in our speed suits. And we had to actually like pee in front of a guy. So we couldn't have like a fake dick or something like that. And a fake pee or something. And my, my buddy, I won't say which one, but he couldn't pee, right? On demand. And so he ended up having to take a crap in front of everybody. This is some of the shit you don't know about, what you have to go through to give your your pee sample. It was crazy. But we all laughed about that. But now that a trace of THC, the active ingredient in cannabis, had been detected in his system, he wasn't laughing. He was shell-shocked as he took a van back down to the athlete village in Nagano. Which was a two-hour bus ride by myself 
in this little shuttle van with some other like freestyle snowboarder who is waiting for his half pipe event to happen like next week. And he's just going to Athletes Village pump that he's at the Olympics. And he's like, hey man, how's it going? And I'm like, he couldn't believe my story. What I was like, we didn't, we talked for 10 minutes, told him what was happening. And then we didn't talk for the rest of the ride. It was too, too intense. By the time he got to Nagano, the news of Ross's failed drug test was breaking. I get to Nagano and the bus is pulling up to like a crowd of paparazzi. You know, we're talking 1998 Britney Spears paparazzi. <laughs> and it was insane. Like I couldn't even get out of the bus. And the Canadian Olympic Association um, had like four or five people to help me get off the bus and make a circle around me and get me from the bus into the hotel it's insane, like cameras in my face and the flashes, just the old school flashes just going like constantly. Ross managed to get shuttled up into his hotel room. When he got there, he had one thing on his mind, to find a hiding spot for his medal. He was scared. With that positive drug test, his first place finish was very much in jeopardy. I was like going to like get out and just get to Tokyo and fly to Costa Rica. Like literally, like I was, I wanted out. I just wanted to get out of the Olympics. Like 10 years before that was Ben Johnson, another Canadian who tested positive for steroids. He's the fastest man in the world. And that was like a huge scandal in Canada. And so 10 years later, it's me, right? That's right. It had been 10 years since one of the biggest scandals in Olympic history. 10 years after Ben Johnson... Here was Ross Rebliotti, snowboarder, the next Canadian Olympic scandal. Ross Rebliotti's snowboarding friends in Whistler, B.C. are standing behind him tonight in his time of crisis. Support also came today from Canadians everywhere, including premiers and members of parliament. And I, clearly he won the race. Clearly he's a decent Canadian and British Columbian. I'm very proud uh, that he's from British Columbia. I think we all are, and I still am, uh, regardless of the outcome of this uh, investigation. The fact that this member of parliament felt the need to come out and make this statement and tell the world in such a sober tone that Ross was a decent Canadian, as if someone who tested positive for THC couldn't be a decent citizen. Well, that tells you something about attitudes toward marijuana use during this time. The stigmatization of marijuana from the Just Say No 80s had carried into the 90s. In 1998, only a very small handful of states in the U.S. had begun legalizing the use of marijuana for medical reasons. Taboos against weed were still strong. And Ross potentially losing his gold medal was devastating on several levels. This was also a blemish for his young sport, which was striving for legitimacy. And on top of that, a blemish for his home country too. So it was like a pretty big hit um, to me personally and, and, you know, Canada too. Like I had a lot of support, but prohibition was thick in those days, you know, against cannabis. And um, it was just a really big, huge stigma to be in any kind of Olympic scandal, obviously. It's like, oh my God, I just like dedicated my whole life to do this. And now it's just being ripped away from me. You know, it was kind of like a death in the family, considering the buildup and the, my backstory to snowboarding. And like, this was my whole life, right? And uh, so, yeah, that was, I was in shock. After Ross got off that bus in Nagano, he went to state his case to Canadian officials at the Olympic Village. He told them that in preparation for the games, 
he had actually stopped smoking pot in April of 1997, a year before the games. He claimed the positive test must have resulted from exposure to secondhand smoke, that he'd been with a group of friends that were smoking back home the day before leaving for the Olympics. Ross's urine sample in Nagano contained 17.8 nanograms of marijuana per milliliter. The International Ski Federation, which ran snowboarding, permitted up to 15 nanograms. The International Olympic Committee's executive board voted three to two to strip Ross of his gold medal. That same day, February 11th, the Canadian Olympic Association immediately filed for an appeal. All the while, comparisons to Ben Johnson's disqualification for the performance-enhancing drug Stanozolol continued during the media's breathless coverage, which required some equally questionable discussion over marijuana as a possible performance-enhancing drug to give Ross an unfair edge, an argument, not surprisingly, that couldn't be made. But there was one reason that Ross's test results shouldn't have mattered at all. The International Olympic Committee had disqualified Ross based on the International Ski Federation's rule. As for the IOC's banned substance list, pot wasn't even on it, which Ross found out as he was waiting for the results of his appeal, still in Nagano, biding his time until a final judgment was made. I was at a wine and cheese party in Nagano with the Prince of Monaco, who was, you know, a bobsledder of the time. And he was like saying that how much support there is for me and to not worry. And if I ever need to like come to Monaco or whatever, like give him a call and stuff. And, and the lawyers took me into the back room and basically said, look, here's the, the list of banned substances. Weed's not on the list of banned substances. And so that was really, really good news. And I just was chumming around with, you know, royalty and, you know, all of a sudden I'm feeling better again. Feeling better, but still not great because Ross had potentially bigger worries than losing his gold medal. On February 12th, Ross was taken to a Nagano police station for questioning. That's when he realized he could actually end up in prison. It wasn't like a steroid, which is also illegal, but athletes never get arrested for steroids. And so I ended up in the police station in between getting my, you know, before I got my medal out and being processed for bringing in a controlled substance into Japan. And so I'm in jail, literally in jail. Ross quickly became well acquainted with Japanese law. He was facing the possibility of jail time, significant jail time. Possession of marijuana in Japan at the time was a serious offense. It carried a five year to seven year prison sentence. He was in a holding cell being interrogated for three hours. In the room was an interpreter for Ross and a policeman. But the interpreter didn't actually speak English. And playing out surreally was a scene that was straight from Broke Down Palace. And at one point, the, the cop is like, how do you smoke weed? Like, they didn't really know anything about it. And I, like, I took his cigarette, one of his cigarettes, and I licked it and I broke it open. And then I rolled it back up again into a joint. I'm like, that's how, that's how we smoke a joint. And he's like... Next question was, do all, you know, people who use marijuana use tobacco? And I was like, oh my God, I was like, no, I'm just, this isn't, like, what? Yeah. The whole thing wasn't very amusing at the time. Ross was drained. He hadn't slept a wink in days. Everything since arriving in Japan had been a whirlwind. 
Yeah. And so I was, I was just like on my last straw, you know, with the, the whole entire thing at that point, I was, I couldn't even believe what had happened. And then there were some times, you know, where I wish I never had gone and they could just keep the metal and I'm just going to keep snowboarding and I don't need this and this and that. I said, I'm stopping. I'm not answering any more questions. And then they left me in the room there for like a half an hour. And then they, they brought me out of the room and they told the, the cop told me that they can't keep an Olympic gold medalist in jail or something like that. And then they let me into the lobby of the police station, back where the Canadian representatives were from the team. And they were all like showing me like on their little old fashioned flip phone text that I was getting to keep my medal. And they were all excited and, and we were all super, you know, relieved about this because it was a multi-day and a huge international scandal for the Canadian team. It was official. Ross won his appeal. He could have his medal back. Though technically, he never gave it away. According to one report, Ross kept the medal in his pocket the entire time. Ross was relieved. Mostly, though, he was exhausted. There was one last thing to do. The cops had to go to his hotel room and search it for weed. After a few hours, they left. They found nothing. Like, it was just like the longest day of my life, right? And finally, I'm walking into my room by myself. And I'm just shaking my head, standing there, not even put my backpack down. And my phone starts ringing in the room, like the hotel phone. And I'm like, this is weird. So I pick up the fucking phone and it's my buddy in Whistler. And he's like, Jay Leno wants you to be on the Tonight Show like day after tomorrow. And there's first class tickets already arranged for you. And you, you basically, you have to do this. Ross knew in that moment that his life would never be the same. When he returned to the athlete's village, he was welcomed by a standing ovation of hundreds of athletes. He went to a hockey game in Nagano to root for the Canadian Olympic team. Later that day, he went to the airport for his flight out of Japan. And some business guy walking through the near airport is like, you're that snowboarder. And I, I right away, I said I wasn't. Just was like a weird reaction. I like, can't believe I said that I wasn't. And he's like, you are. And I'm like, okay, I wasn't expecting that. When Ross left for Japan, he was a nobody snowboarder. When he left, he was not only famous, but also a hero to stoners everywhere. And he wasn't quite sure how to feel about it. His first stop was LA, where he had a room at the swanky Beverly Hilton. That night, like smoking cigars with my buddy from Whistler who came and like literally the, the day before whatever, I was in jail, like going through the craziest experience. And then now like the next day, I'm gonna, you know, go on the Tonight Show. And that was like the beginning of the rest of my life after that, it was just nuts. Jay Leno was just the start of his late night celebrity appearances. Soon enough, he'd appear on Letterman and Conan too, multiple times. Robin Williams even did a bit on him as part of his Broadway stage routine. They said that marijuana was a performance-enhancing drug. <laughs> marijuana enhances many things, colors, tastes, sensations, but you are certainly not fucking empowered. Williams seemed to be on Ross's side, and he wasn't alone. There was a rally back home in Whistler that drew thousands to welcome the hometown hero. In Toronto, Ross did an autograph session where thousands more jammed in a mall. 
Ross got all kinds of correspondences. Law enforcement asking him to speak on the dangers of drugs. Teachers sending letters from students. Kids sending letters with messages like, I named my goldfish after you. The attention was overwhelming, and it was sometimes scary. He was confronted in public by people who didn't think highly of him. Once a kid asked him for an autograph, the kid's dad pulled him away and called Ross a drug addict. Ross even received death threats. Like from the five percenters, you know who they are. They're just very loud and they just intrusive. And, and at the time, you know, I'm just 26. I don't know anything about that. And it was just like very a sensory overload on, on all fronts. It was insane. It would take him a while to adjust to fame, the good and the bad. He was recognized, it seemed, everywhere he went. But perhaps most surreal was this. Joining me live here in his Olympic Village apartment is Ross Rebliotti. That's Will Ferrell as CBS announcer Jim Nance on Saturday Night Live. Hey, man, what's up? (laughs) Hey, listen, man. The, the lights, they have to be so bright. <laughs> the actor playing Ross is Jim Brewer, star of the stoner movie Half-Baked. In this SNL skit, Ross was portrayed as a Doritos-munching, smash-mouth-loving, and completely spaced-out snowboarder. It's not a very flattering portrayal. At one point, Brewer clutching a snowboard says, they should give me a medal just for showing up on time. So not all the attention was great. At one point to escape it all, Ross disappeared to live in a camper at a remote lake, and he never actually cashed in on any of the fame, even though he had plenty of conversations with people who seemed willing to cash in on him. I was getting recognized by the the top people in the entertainment business, Entertainment Tonight, you name it. And um, so I'm 26. I'm like, okay, this is going to turn into something. Right? I had a record deal from Sony. They wanted me to to be like on a record or rap or do Justin Bieber or whatever. And uh, so I ended up doing a compilation with them instead because I just didn't have the balls to like follow through with a recording contract. For a time, Ross was getting paid for TV commercials, but even those opportunities eventually disappeared. Ross was well known for winning gold and his crazy ride but the hate somehow got worse with the rise of the internet. In the early 2000s, marijuana was still controversial. As soon as you could Google my name and it said who I was, then all of a sudden, like, the corporate companies didn't want to do it anymore. And so the internet kind of screwed up my, you know, the whole image that I had. Um, You know, it was just a matter of, you know, all stigma, prohibition, stereotype, you know, the law. For years, Ross was broke. He couldn't pay his bills. He worked in construction. He struggled to find a job. His life changed in many ways, and not just financially. He had actually never been arrested, never broken a law. But still, he somehow landed on the U.S. government's no-fly list, which was more than an inconvenience. It meant fewer family visits, and his mother lives in California. Ross eventually got married, and nine years ago, he wanted to take his newborn daughter to see his mom. And I hadn't been across the border, tried to go across the border in a number of years, and I wasn't really sure. I kind of thought maybe this would all blown over. This was nine years ago, right? You know, so it was like 15 years after the Olympics or whatever. And uh, 
they turned us around at the border after a couple of hours and like we had a newborn baby, we had a dog, we had my wife. It was a trip just to get to the border from where we lived in Whistler. And that was the moment in time where I, you know, decided that I was done trying to be like an Olympic gold medalist. I was done trying to be a role model. Being turned around at the border was a low point. It was a sober realization of who he still was to the world. Ross decided to make the best of his situation. He taught snowboarding to kids, worked for charitable causes, began advocating for environmental conservatism, wrote a book, even announced a run for political office in British Columbia before eventually bowing out. And he always took any opportunity he could to get behind cannabis to talk about the ways in which the substance could support a healthy lifestyle or coming out in support of others who had found themselves in weed-related controversies, like swimmer Michael Phelps, who in 2009 caused a stir when a photograph was published showing him smoking marijuana. Phelps was suspended for three months and lost his sponsorship from Kellogg's. Ross does what he can to change perceptions and the conversation, and he's seen it evolve throughout the years, but slowly. How slow? In the early 2000s, there were still just a handful of states that had legalized medical marijuana use. In 2018, Ross's home country, Canada, became only the second country to legalize weed, joining Uruguay. Just to start off with, like, prohibition is based in racism, right? So there's no, like, scientific reason or social reason other than racism and controlling people that prohibition on cannabis exists. So right away that for for it to be on a list of banned substances that's performance enhancing to keep a level playing field already doesn't jive with cannabis like it's not a performance enhancer in the traditional sense of the word ross is aware that there are bigger systemic issues surrounding cannabis prohibition but at least his story helped people to start talking about cannabis in a different way you know, I've been told that, uh, you know, people credit me with federal legalization in Canada for starting that conversation 24 years ago around the kitchen table. Like, how is it that a gold medalist tested positive for weed? And then all of a sudden the prohibition and the reasons behind prohibition start not adding up. Like Michael Phelps, no one's ever won more medals than him. He smokes weed. Like Shikari, fastest uh, woman on earth, smokes weed, right? Like, Who's testing positive for weed at the Olympics? All the best guys. While the world may be evolving when it comes to cannabis, the Olympic world seems stuck in time. In 1998, the controversy around Ross seemed like an opportunity for the IOC to admit that smoking weed wasn't a serious offense. They went the other way instead, adding marijuana to the banned substances list in April 1998 two months after the Olympics. Some call it the Ross Rebliotti rule. In 2013, the World Anti-Doping Agency raised the threshold for a positive marijuana test from the 15 nanograms per milliliter to 150 nanograms per milliliter. Still, in the years since, a number of athletes have had their Olympic aspirations derailed because of the ban. Last year, American sprinter Kamari Montgomery was suspended one month after testing positive for THC. And just a month later, Shikari Richardson, the superstar American track and field sprinter, was suspended after the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency found that she, too, had some weed in her system. One of the biggest Olympic stars 
was that of the Tokyo Games for a substance that 19 states have legalized for recreational use. Predictably, many drew parallels to Ross's situation, which 24 years ago seemed just as preposterous as Shikari's situation last year. Yeah, Ross felt Shikari's pain, and he felt that everyone lost with the IOC's antiquated rules. Not just Shikari, but the world lost the opportunity to watch Shikari and to see the best athlete in the world compete at what they do. And they stripped that of us also, not just Shikari. Shikari's going to get another chance to compete at the Olympics, but it wasn't just a loss for her or for the U.S. team. But at the end of the day, here's what's going to happen. It was a financial loss for the Olympics. And it was a financial loss for U.S. TV rights. That's why Ross believes that it's probably just a matter of time before the IOC does strike down the Ross Rebliati rule. But it should never have come down to money. And all of a sudden now they're reviewing if cannabis should be on that list or not anymore. And it's because of money. I don't care that it's because of money. I, it, it is what it is. But the, at the end of the day, the IOC has a responsibility to act in the spirit of sport and realize what their list of banned substances represents and stick to that. Today, after all he's been through, Ross is actually in a good place. He's married with kids and he has a business that he's excited about. Ross's Gold, which opened a marijuana dispensary that he has big plans for. I can't be happier. Weed's legal. I can get a job now. You know, coaching kids, whereas before I couldn't couldn't do that, right? And so I'm able to do that. And my family, like, got three kids and everything's great. Um, you know, and we're the new brand, Ross's Gold. Check it out. We're just getting started. In other words, Ross's wild ride continues. He's learned to enjoy and go with life's ups and downs. His life is about his business and his family. Beyond that, he's at peace with his place in the world. He's reminded of it often when strangers come up to him and ask to smoke weed with him. Everyone knows I smoke weed. Everyone associates me with weed. I don't have like this great sports history. I have a weed history. But that's not actually true. Anyone who knows his entire story knows that Ross does have a cool sports history. His performance at Nagano was an incredible come-from-behind win. Anyone can see it for themselves on YouTube. For those who know snowboarding, Ross's second run at Nagano was one for the ages. An audacious and flawless run to win gold. But that moment is often forgotten. It's everything that happened after that is remembered and now celebrated to this day. Ross has come to terms with the fact that he's more well-known as the weed guy than as an Olympic gold medalist. One day, we hope it'll be possible that he'll be known as both. Torched is a production of Film Nation Entertainment in association with Gilded Audio. It's executive produced by me, Molly Bloom, Alyssa Martino, Milan Papelka, Andy Chug, and Whitney Donaldson. This episode was produced by Jenner Pasqua and Nikki Stein. It was written by Albert Chen, technical direction and engineering by Nick Dooley, original music by James Lavino. Special thanks to Allison Cohen, Sarah Vacchiano, Matt Eisenstadt, and Omar Tarbush. Next time on Torched, I'll be joined by my brother, 
football star and two-time Olympian, Jeremy Bloom. We're switching up the format a bit for this one. You'll hear a conversation between the two of us where we talk about how we grew up, what we learned about defying odds and overcoming fear, and how to reinvent yourself when one chapter ends. That's next time on Torched. Thanks for listening to Torched. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a review on your favorite podcast app. It actually really does help the show and it helps us to find new listeners. And uh, we'll see you next week.